Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. I'm Luke Fowler. I'm here with my uh, School of Public Service colleagues and co-hosts, Jen Snyder and Jackie Kettler. How are y'all doing today? Good. Very excited to be back this week. Yes, and we have a very exciting show to, uh, for everyone. Um, and so we're going to start with the... <laughs> it's about the shutdown. <laughs> yes, when I say exciting, I mean mildly depressing, but, you know, mildly uh, exciting as well. Hey, at, least, at least interesting. Right? <laughs> it's ended, so yeah. it could be more depressing. For now. Well, that's that's true. We should have done, like, the whole, like, marathon, we're not leaving the studio till the shutdown ends thing. <laughs> and so we're all like, just in here haggard, like, when is this going to end? Um, you're assuming someone would care that we're just <laughs> All right, on no, here. Maybe that's a radiothon thing that we should do. <laughs> All right. So uh, the big news is that the shutdown has ended uh, after 35 days, making it the longest shutdown in history. Um, so his- history in the making, or history has been made. Um, so lots to, to talk about there. But uh, I think one of the big points of it is um, what the deal that we came to, or that, that uh, Donald Trump, the president, and Nancy Pelosi came to was. Uh, one is not a, a long-term solution uh it only funded our government it was a deal to fund the government until february 15th um so it opened everything back but only for three weeks so we might find ourselves in another stalemate in two weeks the day after thank uh, valentine's day so um that's likely to be another big story uh coming up uh the other part is the border wall funding um and trump basically gave in on that um and so some people uh have been very adamant and very critical of him and uh, him on that point. I believe Ann Coulter called him the biggest weenie since uh, George H.W. Bush was in the White House. Um, it was very, yeah. Which I think is hilarious that that's what, that, like, that was her, hint, uh, her, her insult. Um, so, you know, she, she's been a harsh critic of the president for a while now, really trying to hold his feet to the fire on his immigration promises. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so I, I think uh, Trump is getting a lot of tax on the uh, immigration front. So I, I think the first big question here is, um, was this a win or a loss for, for Donald Trump? Uh, I mean, how do you how do you think it, this can be be seen? Do we is he the hero that came to his senses, or is he just the guy who gave in? I mean, it's 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 hard to see where he won on this issue, at least at this stage. You know, he didn't get the funding that he's been pushing for for the wall. Um, his he, I mean, his the media coverage, the the popular perception of him was quite negative near the end of the shutdown. I think we've discussed before this idea that, you know, in back in Clinton's administration, Congress kind of got the blame, Republicans in the in Congress. That wasn't really, I think the Trump administration thought maybe they could kind of get the blame on the Democrats in the House. It really wasn't working. Um, and there was definitely, he was being kind of to put some, you know, the blame was being put on him and so it's hard to see at this point where he he may have won well and as somebody as media savvy or at least media cognizant as our president is um he's kind of tone deaf to the critics right and he really just pays attention to like the fox news base so i find it very interesting i I wonder what the perceptions inside of that white house is or more importantly the inside of the office and what he sees because I, i think one of the things that that kind of allowed this to drag on was I think he thought he won um, mm-hmm. or, or was winning for mm-hmm. a very long time here and Nancy, Nancy Pelosi probably thought she was winning and for most people would have agreed to that and I think that's what contributed a lot to the stalemate and why it went on for as long as it did. I mean for me that was the most fascinating aspect of this whole thing is I think he thinks of himself as a deal maker. He certainly campaigned sort of with that image you, you know he has the book The Art of the Deal and yet it seemed like his major move throughout this whole 
whole ordeal was simply just to dig in his heels. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about compromising or having a stronger position. He just, it was sort of my way or the highway. And so it was so fascinating to see Nancy Pelosi, who really, I think um, people had questions about her leadership heading in into this. There were some challenges, even, even from the Democratic side. And man, she just came back with a lot of force and a lot of power. And uh, I think showed herself to be a pretty formidable opponent. So I'm not sure there even was a deal that ended this whole thing more more than a capitulation, as you said, Jackie. Right. When when, when things started to get so dire that it was finally like, OK, well, we really like it. it's there's no good at, to keep it keep going at this stage. And, you know, Trump really didn't have a very good bargaining position. Right. There wasn't a lot that um, they didn't have much strength here. And so at the end, it just kind of seemed like, fine, whatever, we'll just kind of give in for three weeks. I mean, there were some big gaffes by people in the cabinet, too, right? Treasury uh, Secretary <laughs> oh, yeah, Steve Mnuchin who, uh, and others who were basically like, why? What's wrong with these federal workers? Why aren't they just borrowing money? And you yeah. think, gosh, they just really show that they have very little sympathy for what it might be to be like a working class or middle class person. And that that was not a good look, I think, for the administration. Yeah. And so I think uh, there's some arguments about whether or not Donald Trump won or not. I, I don't know if I agree with some of the ones. What uh, are the arguments? that he did win. Well, I think some of them are trying to paint him as he was the one who brought made this deal, right? I think that's the story that's trying to be spun, but I, I don't but agree with it. But it's not him. clear like what deal there was, except for like let's get it open for three weeks. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you know that that's kind of on shaky ground. Uh, but I think a lot of people will agree that Nancy Pelosi definitely proved her mettle in all this. So I mean, I, I would say if anybody came out a winner here, it was Pelosi, because mm-hmm. um, I think everybody now realizes that she can hold her own in those rooms. <laughs> That said, if if the last year has taught us anything, it's that this is like probably a long game. Yeah. I know the news cycles are really short, but this is coming up again for discussion here in two weeks. And Pelosi may have won this round. Mm-hmm. But oh, I think it's point. helpful to think about this as a pretty kind of a long term fight. For sure. Yeah. Like in the, you know, the situations can change quickly. Like there wasn't a whole lot of positive press in terms of the president in this previous shutdown. Hopefully there won't be another one. But we, you know, we know can't predict well what will happen. I will say it was a little surprising for me that people were, some people were surprised by Pelosi's kind of leadership through this because even the right has long admired Pelosi's leadership skills and her ability to like wrangle the Democrats in the House. Um, But so it was kind of interesting to see like younger Democrats all of a sudden like be like, oh my, like, you know, Pelosi's amazing. Like, yeah, okay. But there were some real power moves for a while there. I mean, refusing to allow the president to give the State of the Union address. I mean, denying Donald Trump a media platform, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, muscular move on Pelosi's part. So, and from that, I mean, I guess the question is, what do you think kind of forced his hand here? I mean, I, I think that a lot of people say at the State of the Union because it is a big press event. I mean, is there anything else that y'all would like to speculate about what might have finally convinced Donald Trump to come to his sentences or at least change his mind? Well, I mean, and we were we've discussed before the role of airports in this and TSA and TSA was really struggling to get people to work. They had in big airports terminals being shut down. People started to like Senator Risch didn't get back for a vote um, because of issues with delays. So I think that probably plays a role because then people's that really starts to kind of gum up the works. Well, so and I'll say there was two big news stories right this weekend. Um, the first was when I woke up was that Washington LaGuardia or 
Washington Airport, LaGuardia, and then Philadelphia had all shut down for a period of time because of TSA workers. And so, I mean, those are three major East Coast airports. And I don't know if you've if our audience has flown lately, but if you want to see angry people, flight delays. That's what really gets people angry. But the other big story was Roger Stone, right? And oh, his, right. And his yeah. early morning raid. So, um, and then the 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 story later in the day was Roger this, Stone being a former uh, campaign advisor for the yes, and his indictment campaign. by the Mueller uh, probe and everything else. So, uh, you know, those are those are things and. I don't know if those are correlation or causation, but I think certainly uh, something to, to work speculating about is whether or not uh, Trump was like, we have to end the shutdown or at least we need to change the media cycle and what we're talking about here. Right? I think it's it could be. I think it's more likely that there are two things. One, air traffic controllers, maybe even more than TSA, they had stopped showing up for work, um, just sort of refusing to come in or having sick outs, informal sick outs, Which not I union understand. Supported. Yes, like, You've not been paid for like a month. Like, I, I get I get it. But you get enough folks doing that, and you can really shut down the entire air um, travel system in the United States. And then the other thing, I think, is taxes. So one of the right. big policy wins for the Trump administration was the passing of the tax bill last year. Well, if you all of a sudden, the IRS is not coming in to do their work, and you delay people's tax refunds, I think you're going to have a very angry electorate. And I have to think that they saw that coming. Well, Interesting stuff, and we're going to pick back up here in just a minute, but we're going to take a short break first. All right, we're back on the Big Tent talking the government shutdown, so we're having lots of fun. You made that sound so fun, Luke. I, like, I promise we're going to get to uh, talking more. Talking corn dogs, cat, cotton candy, and government shutdowns. Yes, yeah, so we're going to accept the first couple of things, right? Uh, so we're going to get the more cheery, optimistic subjects, and I put those in quotes for our listeners at home. Um, I don't know how optimistic they are, but we're going to talk about more exciting things later. But uh, let's uh, let's talk about where, where we go from here, right? Because, uh, again, as I, as I said earlier, this compromise only got us to February 15th. Um, and so there is still— The day after Valentine's Day for yes. listeners, in case yeah. you need a reminder. Uh, yeah, so if you've not planned, you should start doing that because you know <laughs> restaurants are booking up pretty quickly here. Uh, so we have two weeks to, to figure this out. And uh, Trump, Pelosi, they're, they're still negotiating. Um, before I, I came to the studio today, there was a news story out that says basically they had a deal and it didn't go well. Um, so they're still fighting for border, border wall money. Um, so I think the first question is, do we think there's going to be another shutdown in two weeks? Jeez, I hope not. <laughs> um, you know, and one thing about the funding for the wall that's been really interesting to watch over the last like two months is sometimes the changing definitions of what the wall is, not just in terms of what materials it would be made of. And of course, the wall already exists in a good chunk of on the, the border, but like it's also some allusions to maybe it not being like a physical wall. And so other types of funding that he could or the Trump administration could potentially use as a win on immigration. And so I think that's one thing that's interesting to watch for are other types of ways that they could spend winning on some of the election or the immigration concerns, even if it's not border like wall funding. I guess I'm uh, I have like a structural concern, which is that it's not clear to me who's negotiating on behalf of the White House. And if they have any clout with the president. In other words, I could see Democrats coming to the table and Republicans coming to the table. And in fact, Congress people are saying, yeah, we see some middle ground here when you talk to them individually. But even if that group was able to strike a bargain, it's I'm struggling to see a case in which the president would actually sign a bill. And so I'm worried that it's much more likely that he's going to use this as a chance to say, look, 
I, I tried. I reopened the government for three weeks. You all couldn't figure it out. And now I'm going to declare a national emergency and we're going to build this thing. I, I'm kind of worried that that's where we're headed and that that's how he will get his win, simply because I'm not sure he understands that negotiation means that you have to give something up on your side. Well, I think a, a key part of that is that I'm sure like these tactics work in boardrooms and people are like, yeah, we'll let you save face if it makes me a billion dollars. But nobody is going to let him save face when, I mean, this is a war, right? Um, and, and what's going on here. Uh, but so do you mean a partisan war? Yeah, it's a yeah. partisan war, right? Um, and so I, I think you're right. Like, I think Donald Trump is going to do whatever it takes for him to get a win on immigration so he can go on the campaign trail and says this one promise that I made everybody, I'm doing, but it's Congress that are stopping me. Because, and I, I think we should talk about the emergency declaration but let's be honest like as soon as that gets written there's going to be 15 federal lawsuits that get filed on this thing like it's not going very far but isn't that the way he saves face with his base i mean it is the number one issue for folks in the trump universe the trump base and if he says look i declared a national emergency I tr this was i pulled every last lever and now it's tied up in the courts you know, he doesn't have to carry any of that, any yeah. of that weight. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you mentioned in the first segment, one of the big wins was the tax bill, and which is a big deal, but it also hasn't had quite the broad effects that I think perhaps were thought. And a lot of individuals aren't necessarily at, at least yet seeing the benefits. Yeah, we're uncertain what those benefits will be. Yeah. So it may not be that big of an electoral benefit for the broad population. It helps with some key interest groups, like some of those business associations, but yeah, I think that, you know, he Trump does need some some of this uh, immigrant work on the immigration on uh, the border. And so, yeah, I can see that where that is a way to help save face and get that, you know, like electoral um, messaging. I mean, it just I guess. Oh, man, I don't even know how to say this. I guess I'm so worried about him making that move. And again, what it does for our political norms and sort of the way we do business in uh, American government, because I think, you know, like we've seen with sort of the courts and the nuclear option, it feels like it opens a door to use emergency declarations in ways that are so cynical um, that it be, might be hard to recover from. I, I realize there are folks on the right who see what's happening at the border as a crisis. I, I don't see evidence for that being sort of the same as like a national emergency or you know, somebody bombing us or something like that. It feels like those emergency declarations should be reserved for something that really is posing an immediate um, threat. And so I worry about it being used in this fashion. Well, so I, I think there's an article in the uh, LA Times I was reading about this, and basically they argued the only people that really won were the parties, right? Because Trump is going to exactly what we've talked about. He's going to go write an emergency declaration, and the Democrats are going to run against that. Trump's going to run for it. Um, the Democrats are going to run against that, and they're going to deride him and criticize it, and then secretly hope that their president's going to do the same thing when it comes to a Green New Deal or something else or some you know whatever the the liberal issue is in the in the next cycle. Yeah, climate change, it, you name it. Whatever they're going to do the exact same thing so as much as we're going to criticize him now like democrats are back there to like oh this is going to be perfect right it's going to set this per president so i think you're right like that's the scary part is where this goes from here because it's not just going to be this one and done thing it's going to be the new normal well and that's always the risk with you know violating norms or changing rules like okay we get rid of the filibuster this is great for republicans while in charge you have to realize well you may not always be in the majority and so when you make that change you're setting it up for the other side to use be able to use it as well 
well. Now that's one thing to just kind of change the rules a little bit. It's another to kind of play partisan politics with a more serious element like declaring a national emergency. It does seem like increasingly over the past few decades, too, we're just consolidating more and more power in the executive and that the legislative branch seems to be sort of ceding its ability to really function as a check on the president or uh, the presidency. And so this seems like yet another example of sort of the exercise of presidential power that violates some expectations we have about how that should work. And of course, uh, when the, the fights and the arguments get too vicious, we just punt to the courts, right? Um, and then nobody else will take responsibility for these things. But there is uh, some legislation that at least hopes to create some accountability that there's been lots of proposals for us to try to stop, shut, or pass legislation mm-hmm. to stop shutdowns, right? And Jack, yeah. you know a little bit more about this than I do, I think. Yeah, and so, I mean, some of the discussions, right, like the, the, par- the partisan polarization is setting us up to where the shutdowns are just more, a, more, a bigger threat more regularly. And so what can we do to try to get us out of these positions that we're constantly seem to be in? Um, and one proposal is as simple as just changing the fiscal year to start on January 1st and then trying to just it simplifies some things it, it doesn't result in trying to kind of have these weird budget deals that are different ways also having biennial um, appropriations so not just passing a budget for one year but for two years so I mean it may be challenging to get the initial deal but you're putting it setting it up for a longer time it makes, frame. seems like that makes so much sense you might have some consistency and then people could actually do the work of governing in yeah. between yeah uh, and so for our listeners out there, I mean, uh, what you'll know about uh, or what you may or may not know about legislative bodies, like 90 percent of their work, maybe that's an overestimation, but at least the majority of their work is around passing the budget. And it's even more so in state legislatures that have. Or, it's, it's the one thing they have to do. Yeah. Um, and in <laughs> the states, they have to balance this budget and the, the federal government, they don't have to, but they have to pass a budget. And so this is where a lot of the work goes. And so when we talk about all these other policies and all this other kind of stuff, we might not get to them because there's so many budget battles that are going on and where funding is going and not going. Another interesting proposal is to have, if a budget's not passed, have an automatically like funding continuation that would carry things over until an appropriations bill is passed so that you wouldn't have a, a government shutdown. And is maybe as, as weird as that might sound, that's essentially what we do now with continuing resolutions. Mm-hmm. That's what we passed this week. We just said, all right, we're not going to change anything. And we're just, and so making those votes automatic, I mean, basically just does what we're doing anyway. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, please come back for the third segment and we're going to take a break for now. Yo, what's up? This is Cool Keith. Dr. Octagon, Ultra Magnetic. You're listening to Radio Boys at KRVX 89.9 and 93.5 FM. Courtwell Boise, Cool Keith. The legend himself. All right, welcome back to the Big Tent on Radio Boise. Um, I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-hosts Luke Fowler and Jen Schneider, and we're going to change a little bit from national politics to state politics. Some interesting things happening with a you know the legislative session and pretty full swing now, and a new governor overseeing that with Governor Little. Um, so, has anything struck either of you so far with Governor Little's his new administration? Well, I know on the uh, Democratic side at least leading up to the election, I felt like there was a lot of talk on the left that uh, the choice was really just in, among you know three or four candidates that looked a lot 
like the same person and that maybe Little was sort of the least bad option. But I think he's surprising people. He's sort of come out with some interesting positions and his language has been different from his predecessor. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about how he mentioned climate change a week or so ago. So um, I feel like I'm sort of watching him in a different way than I than I expected to. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll agree with that. Um, and so the thing that stuck out for me is, of course, like him using the words climate change and not in a negative way, at least admitting that it exists. And I think that was a, a big deal. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, I, I don't know what Brad Little's like future ambitions are politically, but I mean, I think he's coming out in a, in, in a modern Republican sense. Um, and I don't mean that like uh, a lot of our Republicans, particularly governors in states like this, uh, come out and run like it's the 1980s um, and respond to policy issues in that way. I mean, he really sounds like somebody who is cognizant of the fact that he is in 2019 um, and he is aware of what's going on in the world around him. Uh, so it's very interesting because, I, I mean, honestly, I didn't know very much about him, but that's not what I expected. Yeah, he's quite the policy wonk. And, and that was known before. Right. But I'm hearing stories of him spending like, you know, over 12 hours going through his budget proposals, making sure things were lined up well. He already really deep into details on various policies, which is, I think, like a good, you know, something that as um, those that study government, we like to see, right, people who really care and going into the details, making sure the policy is, it's going, is what the state needs. I mean, I feel like um, this may be unfair or sort of like a too glib assessment, but I think there have been times in watching Idaho politics, too, where you feel like like there hasn't always been attention to detail. There's sort of been backroom deals or some nepotism or like at the implementation stage, things have gone very badly, like rollouts of software systems and things like that. So (laughs) it feels like a a little bit comforting to know that there is somebody who's really paying attention to how how the wheels are turning inside the machine. And uh, as most of our listeners might know, or at least the ones that are returning, I'm not originally from Idaho, so this is kind of I- I'm I'm interpreting a lot of this was kind of fresh eyes. But I- I'll say my perception of a lot of Idaho and a lot of Idaho politics is this state has grown really quickly, re- uh, really fast. Um, has grown and. Uh, I think a lot of people still think of themselves as a very small rural state, um, and there's very few that realize that now Boise is a metropolitan um, and is growing. It's the fastest growing city in America. Like, there's a lot of things going on, and so we have to start acting like we're a big city and like a big state, and there's lots happening. And so Brad Little seems to be bringing that along with him, at least recognizing those things. Where uh, and no uh, criticisms of previous governors, but I think they still very much. Hi, it's Paige Helms of Helmet. You're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Yeah, I would agree. He, he Little has put a lot of focus on the future, and part of that is also through his focus on education and edu- all his education initiatives. Education, the number one kind of pr- budget priority, and also like from the start, trying to work with a lot of different types of actors on education policy to have a broad coalition. To where you're hearing a lot of Democrats in the legislature and other areas really excited about working with with Governor Little on especially education, which I think is not necessarily what may have been expected, um, but it also is resulting in him sounding very different than Republican governors in many other states. 
You know, it makes me wonder. It feels like in in Idaho politics, at least at the legislative uh, level, the um, groups, sort of far right groups like the Freedom Foundation, for example, have exerted a lot of pressure on legislative functioning and sort of moved discourse and lawmaking to the right. Has um, do we see those effects at the sort of uh, governor level, or are they have they been more insulated from those kinds of politics? That's a good question. I think. I mean, it definitely impacts the Republican Party in the state, right? The, some of those splits, those ideological divisions, and, but also just disagreements over, you know, just kind of internal party battles. And so I definitely think that there that does impact the, the executive branch in some ways. But it, it also allows the governor as being kind of that singular individual is a little bit more protected in some ways, um, but still need to be kind of cognizant of, you know, some divisions within the party. I mean, it seems like they can be maybe a more temperate voice and negotiate some of those splits that you're talking about, Luke, because I think while it's a fact that the Boise metropolitan area is really growing, there's still a lot of people in Idaho who live in rural areas and who I think resent, um, you know, the great state of Ada, as they as they call it. And so, you know, whoever's in charge has to really be able to negotiate some of that. Well, and I think, and to your previous question, I think one of the things that benefits uh, Brad Little is... I don't want to call him a well. We'll say he's a professional elected official. I don't want to call him a professional politician because some people might take that as a uh, as a negative thing to say about somebody. But I mean, a lot of our, our politicians at the state level aren't professionals in the sense that they don't do this full time. They're not paid well. They don't have staffs. They don't have all this support and all this. And so they certainly don't have time to sit around 40, 60, 80 hours a week thinking through these issues, studying, researching, doing all these things. And so I, I think. Uh, Brad does have these opportunities, right? And so I think that really sets him apart from a lot of the other state-level politicians. And the interest. Like, he's actually interested in doing this. Um, And so, and I do think that this just kind of policy wonkness may help overcome some of these divisions like rural versus urban, some of the ideological divisions within the Republican Party, because he can come at policy a little differently than just as an ideologue. It does make you wonder what he was thinking all those years sort of as lieutenant governor and watching things unfold a little bit differently and clearly having so many thoughts and experiences himself. Um, Not to say that Butch Otter didn't know about policy, but I think he just came at it with a different Mm -hmm. orientation, very much known as sort of a people person and about about relationships and maybe less about the details of of policies. That makes me think about Mike Pence. (laughs) I'd like to really read that guy's autobiography uh, someday after all this is (laughs) So, uh, Jen, I have to ask you, I mean, what was your reaction to um, Brad Little talking about climate change? I mean, I think that was a shocker for a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I have talked with a lot of folks um, at various levels of government from the sort of hyper local on up about climate change. And most are loath to even say those words. They sort of turn away and won't make eye contact. I think they know that that's still very much a political hot potato in a red state. So I thought it was interesting that he spoke the words. Uh, I think we should say that he did not attribute that climate change to any cause in particular. And I think we are seeing some movement among folks on the right who are willing to say, okay, climate change is happening, but maybe aren't as ready to say that it's anthropogenic or caused by human activity. And so 
you know, that's something just interesting to keep a, an eye on. I know at the, at the national level, there's actually some really interesting proposals on the right to start to address climate change. Legislation is coming up more and more. You know, I think the, the red states of the South are going to be hardest hit by climate change first, followed by states in the West. So it will be interesting to see sort of how the party manages that shift uh, moving forward and what sort of market-based solutions I, they put forward. And I do think, yeah, that's what I was going to follow up with, that there is a difference there, even for Republicans who do, want to address climate change, tend to view it and perhaps as something for the market or for the private sector to take care of instead of the public sector. Well, I think I, I read an article in the Washington Post or, or political, not, Politico not maybe two years ago when Trump came into office and he said, you know, there are Republicans that are interested in doing this. Just don't use the word climate change. Use any terms but climate change. But if you use that, we're all walking out. And so it, it's interesting to see where that shift is and people are willing to start using those terms. How about, how about hot potato? Yes. That's like good for Idaho, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a hot potato, guys. Yeah, I agree with that. That works. All right. We need to go ahead and wrap things up. We are the Big Tent and you've been listening to Radio Boise. Uh, we're going to leave you with um, some new music coming up. Hippocampus is playing at the Knitting Factory on February 10th.